0: Welcome to A Brief Chat. I'm Jason Crane. Today is Thursday. It's the sixth day of August 2020. We'll finish up the book we've been reading today, but first, let's take a look back at this day in radical history via the Slingshot Collective day planner and also the Certain Days calendar, which I think I showed you upside down last time, but there it is right side up. Uh, A lot of things happened today. In 1945, the United States uh, became the first country in the world and still only country in the world to drop an atomic bomb on another country uh, killing approximately one hundred and fifty thousand people in hiroshima japan in the year 1970 300 yippies invaded and disrupted disneyland demanding the legalization of marijuana in 1975 2300 scientists delivered a warning on the dangers of nuclear power to the white house obviously that worked In 1990, U.S., uh, or I should say U.N. economic sanctions against Iraq began. In 1999, Laura Whitehorn was released from prison. Uh, Laura was one of the people involved, along with uh, Marilyn Buck, in the uh, 1983 Senate bombing, U.S. Senate bombing. And in 2009, in Sydney, Nova Scotia, Donald Marshall Jr. died. He was a a Mi'kmaq man, a First Nations person, whose wrongful conviction for murder kind of exposed a lot of problems with the Canadian justice system and its racism. So that is a look back at this day in radical history. And now let us wrap up pointers to insight to the life of a Zen monk by Soko Morinaga Roshi. If you haven't heard the previous installments of these, and you would like this one to make more sense, then go back. They're all numbered. This is, I think part seven of seven and uh, we're going to wrap it up today. So as you remember, uh, it's been a couple days since we did the last part um, because of yesterday's book reviews. But as you remember, uh soko Morinaga has he's young he's not a roshi at this point a, a zen teacher or a master he has just left his uh teacher of up to that point the only person he studied buddhism with and he's heading off to a, a big prestigious zen monastery to start studying there chapter nine is called carrying through with my first vow Arrived at the entrance to the monastery, and this is Daitokuji in Kyoto, Japan, I took off my wicker hat, placed it to one side on the dirt floor, and, crouching down before the wooden step, called out for admission. In Zen monasteries, the entrance usually has a dirt floor. From there, a few steps lead up to wide corridors to either side of the building. Though dozens of monks might be in training, it is as silent as the grave." I loudly called out the traditional tanomimasho, but my voice seemed to be swallowed up in the silent depths. Then from the innermost part of the building, I heard an answering voice. Who is there? A senior monk appeared. Where are you from? He asked. With my head still bowed down to the floor, I handed him the required documents, curriculum vitae, my petition to be allowed to train in the monastery, and my pledge that, once admitted, I would give myself to the training, even if it cost my life. And I stated where I came from and who my teacher was and begged him to announce my arrival to the Roshi. Please wait a moment, he said, and withdrew. I already knew one is always refused entrance on some excuse, such as the monastery is already full or this monastery is very poor and cannot afford to keep you. And I should remind you that uh, while this practice, I think, still does exist in some Japanese monasteries, uh, this if you decide to study Buddhism in the United States, what's about to be described here will not happen to you. These days I weigh 11 stone, but at that time I was a mere seven and a half. When the monk returned, he told me, You look too frail for the extremely hard training here. Better go to another monastery. There are about 40 training monasteries in Japan, but wherever you go, you're bound to be refused. So I took back my rejected documents, and crouching in the supplicant's position by the bench in a corner, I continued to call out fervently for admission. When Bodhidharma, the 28th Zen patriarch after Shakyamuni, first came to China— Tradition reports his encounter with Eka, who was to become the second Chinese patriarch. So uh, Bodhidharma is the person um, credited with bringing Buddhism from India to China. Uh, there probably was a guy named Bodhidharma. It's probably the case that the stories attributed to him are maybe an amalgamation of things that several different Buddhists did. But in any case, Bodhidharma is kind of the the famous figure who brought zen uh, from the west to the east uh, india in this case being the west so now this is a story about bodhidharma arriving in china ikka arrived at shorinji and asked to be accepted as a disciple bodhidharma ignored him ikka continued to stand motionless in front of the entrance waiting for bodhidharma to acknowledge his presence i think i said that backwards This is a story of someone coming to Bodhidharma to be accepted. I think I said it the other way around. Bodhidharma was the the guy in this one, the the big guy. And there Eka kept standing day after day until the ninth day of the twelfth month. During the night, snow began to fall heavily and reached up to his knees. Then at last, Bodhidharma turned around and asked, What do you seek? At the long-awaited words of the great master, Eka, with his voice choked with tears of gratitude, stated his resolve to practice. The incomparable, marvelous way of all the Buddhas is attained only by long and diligent practice of what is difficult to practice, and by long endurance of that which is hard to endure. Why should you, with shallow mind and arrogant heart, beg for the true vehicle and suffer hardships in vain? In order to, that's Bodhidharma speaking, in order to show Bodhidharma the sincerity of his resolve, Eka took the hatchet slung at his waist, hacked off his left arm, and proffered it to the master. At that, he accepted him as a disciple. "'That is why even today, nearly a millennium and a half after Eka's ordeal, begging for entrance into a Zen monastery is so extremely severe. "'I was well aware of this when I took up my supplicant's position at the entrance. "'I knew this was unavoidable, but I thought it was a matter of form and did not suspect the real severity of it. "'After a while, another monk appeared, armed with an oaken staff. "'You were refused entrance, and yet you are still here, an eyesore to all in the monastery. "'Please take yourself off at once.' Although I had been spoken to politely until then, as I made no move to leave, the monk changed his tone. Oi, are you deaf or something? And with blows and kicks sent me flying out of the gate. When I peered back inside, I saw the monk had disappeared again, so stealthily, like a thieving cat, I crept back again and took up my position at the bench. This kept on repeating itself. At the beginning, I was able to put up with it because I thought it was a form I must comply with, but gradually I started to get angry. They are laying it on a bit thick against someone who is putting up no resistance, aren't they? By evening, my anger had disappeared, and instead I felt utterly wretched and forlorn. I fell to thinking, what on earth am I doing, crouching in pain in this entrance hall, allowing myself to be treated worse than an old floor cloth? Yes, my parents are dead, but I still have some relatives in Toyama. I can always go home. I don't have to put up with this. I had left Daishu-in, which is where he was studying before, with some resolution for entering Daitokuji. When Zweigon Roshi had said, "'This is nirvana money for the disposal of your corpse,' my vow to continue practicing was so firm that it had shaken my whole frame. And when my teacher had tied the strings of my sandals, saying, "'You are never to undo these,' I had felt more determined than ever, and had said to myself, "'Right, let's get on with it.' That had all happened within one day, and now my resolve had already begun to falter in the face of the misery and turmoil which had welled up in me. I think that one's strength of will is extremely weak, I am saying this especially to the young people of today, which at this point was 1985. Until you have subjected yourself to some discipline, you should not put too much faith in your own strength of will because it soon falters. When I saw my will crumbling at the monastery entrance, I suddenly felt I understood the reason for niwazume, which is uh, the phrase for being kept waiting in the courtyard. Crouching by the bench on the dirt floor, your resolve is put to the test time and again. My niwazume lasted three days. My face was congested with blood, and all my teeth felt loose. The eyes felt as though they were starting out of their sockets, and my hips, twisted for so long, felt as though they had been wrenched out of joint. I had come to Daitokuji on the 1st of March, and it was bitterly cold that year. Shod in sodden straw sandals, the cold had risen from the tips of my toes to above my thighs, and my legs had become completely frozen and numb. I think it was an act of real courage to go on and on in this state pulling myself back from the brink of exhaustion and despair to carry through with my first vow to practice, and it was this experience which taught me what real courage is. When I was young, I would sometimes pick a quarrel with someone to show how brave I was. However, fighting with others is not courage. It is merely behaving like a small dog with a loud bark. Real courage is this enduring and holding firm in the face of one's own faint-heartedness. In order to learn the truth of this, it was extremely important that I was made to question myself— over and over again, why I was there. Why are you reading this? If it is just out of curiosity, you will have learned only about someone who lives in a different world from your own. Why I relate my own experiences as a young monk, rather than discuss Satori, enlightenment, or the heart of Zen, is because I hope you will find it of practical use in your dealings with others, in your daily life situation, whether at home or at school or at work. What I consider important is not that Buddhism flourishes or that the Zen school prospers but rather that each individual lives a truly fulfilled and contented life at peace until he dies. So I hope that what is said may help you to find such peace and fulfillment. Many thoughts passed through my mind during those 3 days of supplication. The interminable hours made me think also of all those who come to practice in a monastery. They are from different backgrounds and come with their different innate talents, past experiences, education, and concerns. There would be a small possibility for any training in the monastery if each were to insist on having things run the way that suited him. And again, forgive the single-gendered pronouns here. In the West, there is the saying, new wine must be put into new bottles. I realized that if I intended to pour the new wisdom of Satori into my own vessel, I must throw away all my previous experience, knowledge, and social standing at that entrance and enter the monastery as a vessel completely emptied, humble, and compliant. During the evening of the third day, the monk on duty came out and said, As you are still here despite being scolded and beaten, you show some measure of resolve to practice so you may come in. However, you are not yet formally admitted, so you would better keep your wits about you. Allowed in at long last, the room I was shown into was open to full view, but with a single wall and the sliding doors on the other three sides open. I put my bunko, that's his uh, box with his stuff in it, down by the wall, and facing that same wall sat Zazen. All I could see was that wall. As anybody might be looking in from the three sides, I could not relax. I was given three meals a day, and at night I was provided with a sleeping mat and allowed to sleep. I spent five days in that room, which made in all the period of eight days in which I kept questioning myself why I was here and what I was trying to do. Time and time again I had to remind myself of that first vow I had made to practice, and time and again I had to rally my flagging resolve and repeat that vow over and over again. To continue to hold to that first vow and to carry through with it to the end in the teeth of all adversity encountered is, I believe, an act of real courage. And now the final and very brief conclusion. Thus, I became a monk at Daitokuji Monastery, and after 15 years of Zazen practice, I received Inka from my teacher. In other words, the transmission and the permission to teach. But that I continued all those long years of practice was thanks to what I had learned at the very outset, in practice, not in theory. And I think that's super important, because Buddhism, and particularly Zen Buddhism, is not a theoretical thing. It's not it's not something you think about or read about, although you can think and read about it, but it's something you do. You have to do the sitting practice, or else it none of it matters. At Daishuin, I had learned the meaning of trust, and at the entrance, begging in Daitokuji, I had learned the meaning of that courage which has its roots in faith, and which remains ever-resolute and undaunted whatever the obstacle encountered. The great Japanese Zen master Hakuin said that nothing, let alone practice, is possible without the three essentials, a great root of faith, a great ball of doubt, and a fierce tenacity of purpose. The great root of faith means trusting one's teacher and the the tradition he represents. In the final analysis, it also means believing in the limitless potentiality which lies within oneself. At first glance, it would appear that a great ball of doubt is the exact opposite of a great root of faith. But it means to be at all times aware of one's own lack of insight and to harbor within oneself a great distrust of I, as in the capital I, the self. And fierce tenacity of purpose means to have the real courage to continue the practice. Without these three essentials, nothing will be accomplished. I learned the truth of Hakuin's words not by listening to sermons nor by reading books, but by practical experience. I am deeply grateful that Daishuin and the ordeal of Niwazume, being in the courtyard, taught me this, because without it, I doubt that the half-hearted young man in his twenties would have found the strength to persevere with something like practice in a Zen monastery. However much society may change, I am firmly convinced that Hakuin's Three Essentials constitute the enduring cornerstone of all achievement. People today have lost the feeling of trust in education, and in their daily lives. Especially amongst the younger generation, it has become the general rule to criticize one's surroundings, to shirk one's responsibilities, and to continually change one's mind. And it appears to be the fashion everywhere today to pander to the young. School teachers think it is their job to make their classes as appealing as possible to their pupils, and today's parents think it is their parental duty to dote on their children and to bring them up with the least possible structure or constraint. But please consider, the society into which these children will eventually enter is not such an understanding place, is it? It is a world where everyone is concerned solely with himself. Far from being a world full of fellow feeling and mutual consideration, it is a society full of those who would rather gloat on another's misfortune, pleased at a neighbor's straitened circumstances. Ideally, of course, it should be otherwise, but unfortunately, that is the way the world is. And so when these children who have been educated by amiable, understanding teachers and who have been pampered by easygoing parents have to step into the world as it is, they at once become confused and despondent. How could it be otherwise, since their upbringing and education have taught them neither self-reliance nor resourcefulness? I have presumed to tell of my own experiences as a young man, because I would like you, and especially the young people, to consider this carefully. It will make me very happy if you find something in these reminiscences which will be helpful in your daily lives." And, yeah, I'm not sure exactly how how much stock I place in that whole, you know, uh, I guess I would say to the degree that parents don't impart any sense of ethics to their kids or compassion for their fellow humans or ideas of kind of right action and behavior. Yeah, I think we need that. Um, I don't think we need strict and harsh parental upbringing or strict and harsh education uh, because the world is harsh enough. And I think the more we continue to make harsh people, the more we continue to allow the world to be that way. Um, But I think. I think somewhere in between the complete laissez faire attitude (laughs) toward. Uh, child rearing and the strict like it's a mean old world out there kid i gotta toughen you up for it in between there is a place where we teach compassion and understanding and curiosity and um, love for oneself for one's fellow human beings for one's fellow sentient creatures for the planet on which we live etc cetera, etc cetera. And I think the degree to which we teach that through our own example, through allowing kids to make decisions and then kind of explore the consequences of those decisions, uh, I think that's pretty valuable. I'm obviously I'm not you know I'm not a big fan of strict upbringing. Some of which is colored by my own upbringing, and then of course I'm a father, so I've had my own experience with that. Anyway, I thought that was a pretty cool book, and um, there's a lot of stuff in there that I really related to and found pretty meaningful. Um, I hope. It was, if nothing else, at least interesting for you. Uh, Tomorrow, we'll have uh, Poetry Fridays. Um, Tomorrow, we'll have another edition where it's recorded poetry from back in the day of of some famous poet. But um, I do have a lot of new poets in the pipeline now, thanks to the people who have been reaching out to your poet friends. I really appreciate that. And so we'll have a bunch of people reading their own work from the modern day coming up pretty soon. Uh, you can become a member of A Brief Chat at AbriefChat.com. If you want to watch these instead of listen to them, you can uh, just go to AbriefChat.com and click on ABC on YouTube. If you're already on YouTube and you want to become a member, uh, you can go to AbriefChat.com to do that or to Patreon.com slash AbriefChat. Thank you so much for listening or watching. Uh, thank you even more for sharing this with your friends, your family, your social media circles, whoever it might be. I love you. A better world is possible. But we have a lot of work to do.